Today is the 27th of June, 2023, and we're going to take up um, some koans from the Diamond Sutra. Uh, we're doing the Diamond Sutra as our study text this year prior to our precepts ceremony at Matariki, and we had the first session on Sunday. And it struck me, we're talking about how influential the Diamond Sutra was on the Koan curriculum. And it struck me that it would be useful to um, have a look at the, these Koans as well as, as reading the Sutra. And we'll be sourcing them from a book called The Flowing Bridge, Guidance on Beginning Zen Koans. And it's by Elaine McGuinness. Um, and she conveniently puts all of these these koans together in one chapter, though when you study them, they're not, not necessarily ordered in this fashion, but it, it's, um, it's a helpful organization, so we're going to draw on that. Um, Elaine McInnes was a Catholic nun from the order called Our Lady's Missionaries, and she, she only recently died um, she was born in 1922 and just died last November, 29th of November. So just a couple of years short of, um, no, no, March 1920, sorry, 1924. And she died in 2022, so she was just short of 100, so a couple of years. And uh, she, she trained under Yamada Kohen Roshi, who, of course, was a mentor for Philip Kaplow and was involved in parts of the writing of the uh, Three Pillars of Zen, very important figure and teacher, mostly known in the West, I guess, as, as the teacher to Robert Aitken Roshi. And Elaine um, McGillis, um, trained with him was, was I think, saint, formally sanctioned by him and um, taught at different, a couple of different places, um, Toronto and also in the Philippines. Um, some years ago now, probably about 15 or more, I met at a, a bishop's meeting that I'd been invited to as a um, part of a um, interfaith contingent, I met a nun there who had done some sessions with Elaine McInnes in Manila. So she's somebody who's had a lot of <coughs> emphasis, uh, influence rather, in and outside of the church, Catholic church. So we'll um, turn to our, our text. So she's gathered, the, she's gathered the different koans, most of the preliminary koans, into one list. And then we'll look at each, each of these. Thus I hear, that's the first one. All the Buddhas and the Buddha's dharmas of the Supreme Way arise from the Sutra. What is the Sutra? That's the second one. In the Dharma, everything is equal. 
There is neither high nor low. Why is Mount Ro high and Mount An low? The third one. Dwelling nowhere, mind comes forth. As, uh, dwelling nowhere, mind comes forth is um, a weather way of translating what in our, our own um, common curriculum is arouse the mind without its abiding anywhere. Arouse the mind without its abiding anywhere. Next one is if you try to see me through colors and to seek me through voices and sounds, you are on a false path. You will not be able to see the Tathagata. How can you see the Tathagata? Tathagata, of course, is another um, name for the Buddha. It means the thus come one. And then the last um, pairing is, um, I guess, this kind of synthesis of of these these questions, it's yuiho the dharma of phenomena and muiho the dharma of emptiness, and we'll see more about what these are when we get to them. hadn't hadn't seen these ones before. says a little bit about the name of the sutra. She says, the full name of the discourse mentioned here is the diamond sutra of the perfection of transcendental wisdom. The diamond cuts all other materials but cannot itself be cut by any of them. When clean and polished, it shines resplendent in the tiniest light, even when immersed in water. Translating the title with this in mind, it could read The Discourse on the Penetration of the Impenetrable. Or Thich Nhat Hanh has as the title The Diamond That Cuts Through Illusion. The Diamond That Cuts Through Delusion or Illusion. can relate this to Manjushri who we have on our Sishin altars, the Bodhisattva of, of Prajna wisdom who, who has a sutra book in one hand and in the other hand he wields a dharma cutting sword, a, 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 sorry, a delusion cutting sword, cuts away what is unnecessary. The Diamond Sutra is part of the Prajnaparamita scriptures, the wisdom books, which came out of India. For the northern Mahayana Buddhists, that includes us, the Prajnaparamita scriptures are the most sacred and precious of all their canonical writing. Prajna means the highest intuition, which views things in their aspect of ku, shunyata, emptiness. Ku is the, is the Japanese... Uh, translation of, of shunyata. Ku is not dual, nihilistic. Ku is not nihilistic, but speaks of ultimate reality, which cannot be placed in any modern logical system. The Diamond Sutra sets forth the doctrine of shunyata and prajna. 
emptiness and wisdom. She says does not can't be placed in any modern logical system. Um, I think it's fair to say that it can be placed within in a system of um, logic, and that the one in which this is done in a very effective way is to be found in Tibetan Buddhism. Zen, of course, doesn't really truck with logic. It's if anything, it's it's anti-logical. In this sutra, the Buddha states that he does not have any fixed dharma to teach. His doctrine consists solely in wiping out all th thoughts that stir the mind so the mind can be still. He says wisdom, inherent in every person, can manifest itself and perceive the nature, and then perceive the self-nature to, to come to Buddhahood. In the introduction to the main body of the text, we read. Now, in the midst of the assembly, this is about the second, the second chapter of the, of the sutra. The first chapter describes the Buddha um, going on the arms rounds and coming back and washing and eating and sitting, which is in itself a teaching, a complete teaching. Now in the midst of the assembly was the venerable Subhuti. Subhuti was one of Shakyamuni's ten major disciples. He is depicted in the Prajna Sutras as the foremost in understanding in emptiness. There's a, um, there's a little legend about Subhuti's birth which, which um, in a kind of vivid, fable-like way describes his birth. Subhuti, the word, his name, Subhuti, has three meanings, empty-born, well-manifest, and good luck. And apparently in Subhuti's household, there were 108 storehouses filled with all the precious gems, gold and silver, and uh, lapis lazuli, crystal, mother of pearl, so on, great, great, great wealth. But when Sabuti was born, all the storehouses, found strangely and unexpectedly, were found to be completely empty. One after another, the bolted doors were opened to reveal absolutely nothing within. Who has stolen my jewels? cried Sabuti's distraught father. We had such wealth, and now we are penniless. What is the meaning of this son? So he, he went to a, a fortune teller, a diviner, who calculated that the disappearance of the jewels and the birth of the child had been simultaneous. And so for the, this reason, his father called him empty born. But analyzing the child's birth chart, the diviner declared it very lucky where on the pond the child was further named Good Luck. <clears throat> then seven days after Sabuti's birth, all the, the family wealth reappeared in the 108 storerooms. And so then the father <coughs> chose to rename his son Well Manifest. So anyway, he's, he's um, 
his birth associates him closely with um, emptiness. Forthwith, Sabuti arose and covered his right shoulder, knelt upon his right knee, and respectfully raising his hands with palms joined, addressed the Buddha thus. Now just a little bit about these things that he does. Um, rose and covered his right shoulder, knelt upon his right knee, and raised his hands with palms joined. Um, these were traditional ways of, of, of showing respect and asking for the teaching. And then he asks, World Order One, it is most precious how mindful the Tathagata is of the Bodhisattvas, protecting and instructing them so well. World honored one, if good women and good men seek the consummation of incomparable enlightenment, by what criteria should they abide and how should they control their thoughts? Now, this is the important question, the fundamental question that informs this whole sutra. How should we conduct ourselves and how should we? train our mind. And this is in order to seek the consummation of incomparable, incomparable enlightenment. In other words, anuttara samyak sambodhi, complete perfect enlightenment. So how, how do we practice for this, for this aim? How should another way of putting it? It's another translation. How should they subdue their heart, tame all their false views and thoughts? What should we do? The Buddha said, "Very good, Subhuti. Just as you say, the Tathagata is ever mindful of the Bodhisattvas." protecting and instructing them well. Now listen and take my words to heart. I will declare to you that by what you, by what criteria good men and good women seeking the consummation of incomparable enlightenment should abide and how they should control their thoughts. So this, the sutra then sets out um, instructions on, on, for us on how we should control our thoughts. Subhuti said, pray do, world honor one, with joyful anticipation, we long to hear. Now, Elaine McInnes adds to this. Now, presuming that you are all good men and women seeking the consummation of incomparable enlightenment, we present the following expert excerpts from the Diamond Sutra to instruct you as to the criteria of how you should live and how you should control your thoughts. She's, what she's doing here is, is bringing, bringing this whole 
discussion, this whole sutra, here in the, into this room. We are the, the good men and women seeking realization. And this, this sutra is expounded really for us, for us to take to heart. And it's not meant as a, as a philosophical exercise, but really as, as um, an existential process of um, unfolding. And the first, the first lines of the sutra that are, that are taken up as a koan are, thus I hear, and um, you're, if you've read any other sutras, you'll have heard this before, this is um, pre prefaces most of the sutras, and it's Ananda speaking here, a little bit about him. Ananda. He was, he was a, a relative and constant companion to the Buddha for the last 20 years of the Buddha's life. Um, and he was probably uh, the child of um, the Buddha's father and his aunt, very, very closely related. It is recorded in the Buddhist books that Ananda was born during the very night Shakyamuni received his great enlightenment. Eventually, he attached himself to the group of people who accompanied Shakyamuni on his mendicant preaching tours and was a great favorite, not only of the leader, but of the followers of the well as well. He was a brilliant man with the most exceptional memory. He was called the best hearing and remembering monk. He was said to have, be able to recite all the sutras, all the discourses he'd heard, word for word, and he would just start each time when he, he recited a sutra, he would start, thus have I heard. Ananda, during the Buddha's lifetime, didn't come to awakening. And um, this bothered him. There's a um, koan in the Mumon Khan which, which uh, dramatizes this, this angst of Ananda's called the non-Buddhist questions the Buddha and um, a non-Buddhist comes to see the Buddha and asks um, and says I do not ask for words I do not ask for no words the world honored one that's the Buddha just sat still the non-Buddhist praised him saying the world on one with his great compassion has dispelled the clouds of my delusion and enabled me to enter the way. Making a deep bow of gratitude, he departed. Ananda then asked the Buddha, what is it this non-Buddhist realized that he praised you so? 
The world-honoured one replied, a first-class horse moves at even the shadow of the whip. Here was this most faithful of disciples um, with him moment by moment for over 20 years and yet he, he could not realise the truth until later. And here he was seeing a non-Buddhist have a realization, very painful for him. But he didn't, he didn't give up, he kept going. And he, he, years later when the disciples were gathering for the purpose of compiling all the teachers, the Buddha's sermons, um, there was a meeting <coughs> to be held and there was consternation that Ananda wouldn't be able to join because he hadn't yet had some um, insight. And so one version of the story has Kashapa, the um, leader of the group, Mahakashapa, put Ananda on a, on a one-week session and at the end of this week he had come to realization um, and was, was therefore qualified to participate in the meeting. And he attended the meeting, when he attended the meeting, he recited from memory all of the, the discourses he had, had heard, starting each time, thus I have heard. So we take up these, these words, um, thus I hear, How do you, how do you hear? How can you demonstrate that? Hearing is central to this whole sutra really. Any sutra that we hear, we are, you could say, hearing through the mind of Ananda. No, no hearing is possible without a mind. No experiencing. This is why this is why our minds are so fundamental. How do we hear? The next part of the sutra taken up um, is this statement. All the Buddhas and the Buddha's Dharma of the Supreme Way arise from this sutra. What is this sutra? And Elaine McInnes comments. All through the sutras there is an insistence on the teaching. All those who seek consummation of incomparable enlightenment should discipline their thoughts and also no bodhisattva who is a real bodhisattva cherishes the idea of an ego entity, a personality, 
a being or a separated individuality. Um, this, this, these four um, are a powerful ways in which we slice up our experience and how we how we create otherness. Um, Read them again here. An ego entity, a personality, a being, or a separated individuality. I'm not going to go into too much detail with these because we'll be looking at them in our session on on Sunday, our second session on the, on the Sutra proper. Um, you can just look at them more generally. It's also quite um, confusing because different translations of the Sutra use different terms for each of them. Um, but we can say, we can say that they are ways of describing our our dualistic and bifurcating habits of mind. And it's, it's over these that we need to learn to have some control, or at least to, to begin to become aware of them as operating and not be misled by them. To, to conceptualize a self is to also give rise to another. And we often have different standards for um, ourselves from those we have for others. And so this, this, this way of thinking is the source of so much suffering in the world. Elaine McInnes writes, when we think ego, we solidify it against its opposite, non-ego. So we think we, this is ourself and everything out there is other. And each of us does this and those worlds don't match up at all. Source of great conflict. But if you, if you look deeply into, into the nature of the self, then, as Thich Nhat Hanh puts it, you find that we're all made up of non-self elements, actually. Of everything that we think of as, as not self is necessary for us to exist. Um, most obviously, and most intimately, our parents. We are the continuation of our parents and of our grandparents and our great-grandparents. And beyond that, not just where our genes come from, but all those who've, who've contributed to our welfare, our survival, educated us, cleaned up our wastes for that matter. What if, what if, 
that that stopped. A lot of no one was um, collecting our rubbish each week. We don't usually think of our waste and our rubbish as a part of ourselves. We we otherize it as quickly as possible. What if we had to drag around all our waste with us? There's um, a very fine um, animator who's done many uh, videos for um, pop songs, Michelle Gondry, and one hilarious one has a, a guy um, in, a, in a kind of um, suit of, of turds. <coughs> Something we, 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 it disgust, it's disgusting, but it's a part, and actually it's a part of who we are. She continues, in the same way being proposes non-being. The use of I separates into I and all else. This is the way our bifurcating intellect works. Only in the transcendent state beyond opposites is the infinite realized. So what is the sutra? It can't be the opposite to that sutra how do you transcend this sutra and that sutra? There is another section of the sutra not quoted in this koan that says that the infinite is undeclarable. If that is so, then how are you going to transcend the opposite to declare the infinite, which is undeclarable? How do we get beyond our dualistic thinking? Just so deeply ingrained in us. Our zazen, our ways of doing things, our um, our sashims, all of these point us to um, towards, lead us towards non-dual states. Which, is, which aren't something we have to create or manufacture. They're, they're fundamental to who and what we are. We just cover them up with our concepts about things. The next one, too, also, um, next, the next koan from the Diamond Sutra also explores the, this issue of... Um, But by forgetting intellect. In this Dharma, everything is equal. There is neither high nor low. 
Why is Mount Roe high and Mount An low? We could say here, we could say here, why is Ruapehu high and Rangitoto low? If everything's equal, as, as the, the, the sutra says, then how come there are high mountains and low mountains? She says that the English word equal tends to be bifurcating. One thing has to be the same measure, quantity, amount, or number as another. Another case of this and that, you and I. But equal also means regarding or affecting all objects in the same way, which concur in the Dharma. So its very nature, the Dharma, the, by its very nature, the Dharma sees all as equal. Why then is one mountain high and one low? Again, we're invited to, to leap beyond our normal ways of thinking to uh, address this question. Says, I trust there is no serious Zen student who would present this koan and doksan as a study in comparative topography. Nor do we sit on a celestial throne and proclaim all mountains are the same. In the Diamond Sutra, Buddha tells us that a bodhisattva does not discover through intellectual process. Why? Because, he says, if men allow their minds to grasp and hold on to anything, then they would be cherishing the idea of an ego entity, a personality, a being, or a separated individuality. Likewise, if they grasped and held on to the notion of things as devoid of intrinsic qualities, they would still be cherishing the idea of an ego entity, a personality, a being, or a separated individuality. So you should not be attached to things as being possessed of or devoid of intrinsic qualities. Because once we, once we see a thing, then we attach to it, an object, like, like iron filings to a, to a magnet. At this point in his teaching, the Buddha refers to it as a raft. A question is asked. Does a man who's safely crossed a flood upon a raft continue his journey carrying that raft upon his head? So long as the mind is attached even to the Buddha's teaching as a basis, it will cherish the idea of I and other. We've got to learn to, to, to put that raft down once, once it's no longer, once it's served its purpose. After the Buddha stated that we should not be attached to things as being possessed or, of, or devoid of intrinsic qualities, he said, this is the reason why the Tathagata always teaches this saying. 
My, good, my teaching of the good law is to be likened unto a raft. The Buddha teaching must be relinquished, thrown away. How much more this teaching? This is also a, a famous quote of the, the Buddha's. We've got to throw away even the Buddha's Dharma. How much more we have to throw away false teachings, false dharmas. And then she comes back again with this question. Please sidestep all misteaching and show me why Mount Ruapehu is high and Mount Rangitoto is low. Show it. Pre prior to words. Next phrase that's taken up is dwelling nowhere, mind comes forth. Or as I said before, arouse the mind without its abiding anywhere. The Diamond Sutra says Sabuti abides nowhere. In another place in the discourse, the Buddha says, if the mind depends upon anything, it has no sure haven. If our mind depends on anything, it has no sure haven, no refuge, because all things are subject to change. All things are insubstantial. Skipping around here, but Sabuti dwells nowhere, therefore he is sighted. Sabuti, joyful abider in peace, dweller in seclusion in the forest. And we can we can understand this this forest in two different ways. Just literally as as living in a in a hermitage in in the jungle or living aloof and uh, unperturbed by the distractions and temptations of the forest of, of human complexities and desires. And this, is, this is, you can say this is more of the, the Theravodan emphasis on rising above impurities. In the Mahayana, we, we, we emphasize more transcending, not necessarily leaving behind, but um, seeing through the entanglements. Dwelling nowhere, your mind must come forth. Our mind is our consciousness. Can we tell where it is? Some people point to their head, but that is the brain they're referring to. In reality, we can't locate it, and yet we can see it function. As Yamada Roshi used to say, it is the entrance to the essence of the vast, limitless universe. It's a helpful way of thinking about our minds. The entrance to the essence of the vast, limitless universe. 
And then she, she quotes him further. We cannot locate our essential nature because it is zero, yet it has infinite capabilities. It can see with the eyes, walk with the legs, think with the brain, and digest food with the stomach. It weeps when it is sad and laughs when it is happy. Though it is zero, no one can deny its existence. It is one with phenomena. The essential nature and phenomena are one from the very beginning. That is why the Hanya Shingo, the Heart Sutra, can say, form is nothing but emptiness, emptiness nothing but form, as we just chanted a short while ago. Form is only emptiness, emptiness only form. Form is no other than emptiness, emptiness no other than form. If your mind must come forth, show it to me, right here, right now. Let me see. Arouse the mind without its abiding anywhere. How can you do that? Actually, we can do it moment by moment, every day. Next, next line is to be taken up. If you try to see me through colors and seek me through voices and sounds, you are on a false path. You will not be able to see the Tathagata. How can you see the Tathagata? The Buddha asks, what do you think? Is the Tathagata to be recognized by some material characteristics? Wherefore? Because the Tathagata has said that material characteristics are not, in fact, material characteristics. Whosoever not, in fact, wheresoever not, in fact, material characteristics. Wheresoever are material characteristics, there is delusion. But whosoever perceives that all characteristics are, in fact, no characteristics, perceives the Tathagata. This is the, the, the kind of the dialectic of this sutra repeated again and again, um, take, taking everything out from underneath us, pulling the rug away. Later on he says, all bodhisattvas, lesser and great, should develop a pure, lucid mind, not depending upon sound, flavor, touch, odor, nor any quality. The bodhisattva should develop a mind which alights upon no thing whatsoever, and so should he establish it. And McInnes comments, perhaps this is mindfulness rousing the mind without its abiding anywhere. Finally, we come to these two sort of summary 
themes for the sutra that, that she talks about, yui-ho and mui-ho. Yui-ho is the, the dharma of phenomena. Yui-ho points to the dharma of form and shape. We are taught in the sutra that all phenomenal things are under the law of change. They are like a dream, a phantom, a bubble, a shadow. They are like dew or a flash of lightning. You should see things like this. And this is this, is this um, she quotes this famous gata, four lines from the, near the very end of the sutra. Thus shall ye think of all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. So, so this is how to experience our world. Well, phenomenal um, existence, dreamlike, fleeting. But at the same time, vivid, beautiful, particular. That's one face of things. And then the other one is muiho. Muiho, the dharma of emptiness with no beginning or no end. The word muiho implies effortlessness. All things are freely subject to emptiness. This emptiness is not something imposed, but something inherent. No thing, if it's inherent, you could say. gives a whole other list of, of, of words that he used to describe this, this muiho dharma, self-nature, self-realization, essential nature, satori, enlightenment, Buddha nature, heaven, lotus land, nirvana, um, all these v words that, that can indicate something but not, no way capture it. They have no shape or form, even though they are in our phenomenal world. In daily life, we are always meeting and seeing Tathagata. Every moment, every task we do, life itself is replete with fullness and emptiness. We live each second as a minute, each minute and as hour, each hour as a day, each day as a week, and each month as a year. Each moment is a lifetime. Let us live each moment replete with fullness and emptiness. And then she ends with a story which I'd like to end our Tasha with um, that, that 
beautifully illustrates how it is, how we experience things, if we do drop these, these um, four bifurcating concepts that we hold so tightly to, separate self, human being, living being, lifespan, that's one translation of the four, slightly different than the ones she gives here, which um, are from the um, AF Price translation, we're using the, the Red Pine one. But le let me tell the story because it's, it's um, it embodies what the sutra has been talking about. And it comes, I think, from either Chuang Tzu or Lao Tzu, she doesn't, she doesn't say, I don't think. But he, here's the story. Once upon a time, there was a Chinese carpenter whose work was so extraordinary that the Prince of Lu called him in and said to him, these things you make are so perfect that it does not seem possible that any human being could make them. Is it true or is it not true that in your work you have superhuman assistance? And Ching, the carpenter, who was a very humble man, answered the Prince of Lu something like this. First of all, when I am to make some cabinet or box of great quality, I separate myself from the world for two days. At the end of that time, I am no longer aware of title, dignity, or estate, so that no matter for whom I was making the box, I am just making it for a person. There is no longer any glamour, no longer any sense that I must make a better box because a great nobleman has ordered it. Then for two days more, I relax and meditate and I come to the conclusion that it is of no consequence whether the box is good or bad. I no longer fear that my work will not be sufficient. I no longer hope that it will be outstanding. I have lost all interest in whether I am praised or blamed for the thing I have produced. Then, in two days more, I am no longer aware of myself. I no longer care whether I exist or not. Gradually, that part of my mind that is naturally and usually devoted to personal concerns is relaxed away from these, so that I no longer know that I have a body or that I have hands or feet. Everything becomes very quiet. All this time, I have been visualizing what I am going to build. Until finally, there is nothing but visualization and the object. Having attained this degree of internal rapport with value, I then go out into the forest or wherever the materials for the object are to be found, and I wander about until I f find my piece of work, my box or cabinet or screen, somewhere within the body of something that already exists. I look at the tree and say, there is my box. I look at bamboo and say, there is my screen and I am aware that I am going to move the box that is already in the tree 
out of the tree to where it can be seen. Then I sit down quietly with all my materials and I allow heaven to put the box together. When heaven puts the box together, the seams are perfect. When men put a box together, the seams are not perfect because the man will say, this seam is better than that seam, or I must make a good seam, or will the purchaser be pleased with the box? Thus all things come to nothing. But I am concerned only with the fact that heaven makes a box, and the box that heaven makes will please heaven. And if I am fortunate in all these matters, the box I have made will cause the Prince of Lu to say to me, Did you receive superhuman help? And Elan McInnes adds, In our daily lives, we work with objects, boundaries, and other elements, seen as contradictions to Tathagata, but discipline and practice bring all things to me. Discipline and practice bring all things to me. No thought of self or success or failure or fame or admiration. Dropping all of these. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. Without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I Oh uh-huh.